Hello, so glad you could join us here on episode, I believe this is five, of Documenteers. We are doing today our second 30 for 30 episode, The Band That Wouldn't Die, directed by Toys Director Barry Levinson. I think it was coming off of something when I recorded this a while back, so my T's kind of sound like D's. I think it's kind of cute, like an overgrown child with a, a very deep voice. But you can find this podcast on places like iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and many other podcast applications. If you'd like to help the show out, then go on iTunes, give it five stars, That'd be great. Write a review. It doesn't have to be much, but if you do want to go into details, make it Werner Herzog erotica. Oh, I'd love to read some fan-written Werner Herzog erotica. But yes, five stars and a nice review. That helps people who would be interested in what we're doing find our show. And you'd be doing a big help here in our early beta stages of the podcast. You can also contact us at documenteerspodcast at gmail.com, as well as Twitter and Instagram at documenteerspodcast. All right, all right, let's talk sporty junk now. All right, all right. Now, here is a motion picture film, a thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. It was almost religion. Every Sunday was like uh, going to church. That's a docs with an X, not a CS. So don't sue us, Warner Brothers. You have entered the Documenteer Zone. We're not doing that? We are now. (laughs) We are here. I'm here with my sportsman, Drew, host of WXNA's Walk It Off and Loud Love, which you can hear when? Sunday nights. 11 p.m. if you're right here in Nashville on 101.5 FM. That is central time for all those people everywhere else. Yeah, there's internet, too. You can find it there, not at that time. There's probably... The the shows at WXNA are banked, right? So you can just listen to them online, right? Archived on the WXNAFM.org website and at walkitoffradio.com. Oh, right. We, you're the sports guy, so we're here to talk about our second 30 for 30 film this one i've seen a lot of the early ones this is one i had not seen until now i'm excited about that you get that fresh take yeah you're hot on this one i like it and i'm not against it but like it's going to be interesting to see how we split on it a little bit but now that i've been on the documenteers once before it's nice to be back yeah welcome back back in the documenteer area uh i think these are shamco studios we're in oh shamco studios i gotta get the branding down well this is the second episode okay it's not the last one i've been on so you know you give me a couple more there's a lot of 30 for 30s left the second episode that you have been on that's what i said oh right 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 (laughs) but this is uh we're doing the second ever 30 for 30 the band that wouldn't die 
directed by prolific director Barry Levinson. He's directed Diner, The Natural, Rain Man, and probably most famously and beyond all those, he's directed that seminal work of art, Toys. Fantastic. That's right. So, so is that's the one you're going to choose if we're going to give him a name? Toys director Barry Levinson. Toys director <laughs> Barry Levinson. Rest in peace, Robin Williams. That's how we're doing this episode. Okay, I got it. You no, know, he's also working on as of this recording anyway on a Joe Paterno movie for HBO starring Al Pacino because Al Pacino has to be in every HBO biopic. Makes sense. The band that wouldn't die is the story of that band that wouldn't die. Weird, but it's nice because they they'd use the smaller story to tell the bigger story that everyone already knows, and that's one of the things I really liked about this episode is that that I feel like this is where Thirty for Thirty kind of finds itself a little bit, and that's what it was more supposed to be. It's telling a really small story that even diehard sports fans probably don't know, but they know the bigger story around it—the story of the Baltimore Colts move in the middle of the night. <laughs> Now, I did know, I did not know to the extent of how this deep this story went. I knew that they would go to Indianapolis. I did not know that they literally took off in the night. Oh, yeah, the Mayflower vans, very famous sports scene, just pulling up to the complex in the dead of night, hoping nobody notices all these giant moving trucks <laughs> pulling up to the Colts complex in Baltimore. They hired, like, uh, I don't, I don't think this is covered in the movie, but they hired like a fraternity to help move all this. <laughs> College hunks moving junk. And they were putting on jerseys and memorabilia laid under their clothes <laughs> until someone had to be like, hey, look, you can't just take all of this shit. And like people are looking like the Michelin man. Oh, where did you hear that? Why is that not in this documentary? <laughs> I, I, it should have been. But I had read, a, like, a little article on it after I had seen the movie. It was a very entertaining article. I can't remember exactly where I saw it. But. <laughs> Not bad. You know, look, if you're hired to move all the stuff out of an NFL team's complex in the middle of the night, eh, some of it's going to end up on you. Yeah, for sure. I would have been taking things, too. So, like, we got to clear out the pictures, the posters on the wall. They're taking the hang in there, kitties. I don't know what's going on. They're, they said they were taking office furniture. Just everything in this building is getting loaded onto moving vans and sent to Indianapolis, and hopefully nobody in Baltimore notices. This, much like our last episode, King's Ransom, with our uh, villain, Peter Pocklington. Well, a debatable villain. You pointed out that he did help bring the Edmonton Oilers up into a championship team. This feature film features Jim Ursay. He decides, apparently he had been shopping the Colts around, like Jacksonville was one city that seemed like a strong bet. But ultimately, the media catches whiff of a sudden move. And they catch this whiff while the Mayflower trucks are rolling out of the stadium. Well, this was Jim Irsay's dad who was owning the Colts at the time. Oh, wait. Who made these moves. Jim Irsay was interviewed a lot during the film. Oh, uh, I got that backwards. Robert Irsay? What, what was, was his it? dad's name? I think it was Shit. Robert Irsay. I didn't write that down either. Much like our last episode of 30 for 30 that we reviewed, King's Ransom, which has villain Peter Pocklinson, a debatable term. People go one way or the other. He did help the Edmonton Oilers come out of that WHA scene into the NHL into a championship team. I liked how the 30 for 30 there just kind of threw that in at the beginning and then basically let him be the villain the rest of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> But he kind of fills that role very well. Yeah, you need a villain. But Robert Ursay is the Colts' owner, and he is quietly shopping 
the Colts around. He, he wants this on the DL as much as possible. The media does catch a whiff of a sudden move, but they catch this whiff as the Mayflower moving rings are leaving the stadium. The town is shocked, not least of which is Mayor Don Schaefer. He's fucking pissed off. He's fucking pissed off. And they had the cops blocking it off, too. They had police cars blocking off entrances to the street where the Colts complex was, where all these moving vans were loading stuff up, again, in the dead of night. There's a lot said. I, I had bullet points on Peter Pocklington, and I thought about getting bullet points of Robert Ursay. I think Robert's problem, as his son Jim points out in this documentary, is that he had an alcoholism problem. He lost his son to alcoholism. He had some tragedies. And he was losing his personal war with the drink. Robert was telling people that that he wasn't going to sell the Colts. He wasn't going to sell the Colts. But ultimately, he was a liar. In this episode, the drunken airport impromptu press conference with Robert Ursay is an unbelievable scene. <laughs> yes. You've just got the angry old man coming off the plane. Drunk, yelling at reporters who just kind of showed up at the airport to interview him as he lands because he was coming back. He was. They thought he was going to Phoenix to sell the team to move it there. Well, not sell the team, to move it to Phoenix to get the deal done there. And they come in and they ask him, were you in Phoenix doing all this stuff? He said, no, 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 no. And later on, the voiceover in this episode is like, he was in Phoenix the day before. Well, Phoenix publicly was like backed out of the deal. Yeah. Publicly. So that verified that he was lying because he was quietly trying to make this deal. And when Phoenix decided that they didn't want the deal, they publicly were like, we're going to have to back out of Robert Ursay's deal. For and the Colts. he's wildly drunk and belligerent in this press conference. He's calling out reporters by name. He's uh, basically doing the 80s version of fake news. Fake news. <laughs> Just getting real upset, real drunk, having a what seems like a really good time. Just berating reporters, too. But he's so angry that they think this is happening. And, of course, it did just happen. It happened. But he didn't want anyone to know. Yes. The Baltimore Colts had a marching band. I don't know how many marching bands were involved in the NFL at the time. I mean, it's long-time tradition through high school and college football. Yeah, for sure. And old-time NFL had it as well. But the Colts band was kind of superlative they were one of the best out there the better known the baltimore colts marching band they're very prolific and they got wind of the move and they grabbed their equipment as much as they could they managed to get down there grab as much equipment as they could but their uniforms were at the cleaners that's the only reason they were able to get them if they were at the complex they never would have had the uniforms but just since they happened to be at the cleaners and then they basically made a backroom deal with the cleaners <laughs> to get their uniforms because everyone was so mad at the Colts for moving. Now, it's, it, it can't be understated how big a football town Baltimore is or was at this time and probably still is. They were very happy to get the Ravens. I mean, you're talking about this wildly successful AFL-NFL team. They had Johnny Unitas, one of the biggest stars of the early NFL. Yep. This is a big deal. And the cleaners, who are going to be Colts fans. They let the marching band take the, uh, the cleaning truck the uniforms <laughs> for a ride. out the back, and they hid the uniforms in a mausoleum. How good was that, that they didn't know it? They had them in somebody's basement until they got word that maybe a Colts executive was coming over? 
So they got in a van with a guy who said he had a spot, and it ended up being his family mausoleum. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically bury the uniforms with the dead. Now that's a nice touch in a documentary called "The Band That Wouldn't Die." Now they're undead band uniforms. Well, at the pointed out the mausoleum at ni- around nine forty, the title of the movie appears. What a great story that is! The cleaners letting you take the uniforms and you hide them in a lot mausoleum. I thought Barry Levinson's graveyard shots were very corny. It was heavy-handed. They even had the lightning strike on one, <laughs> and then the slow pan shots on tombstones. It's like, yeah, we we get the gist. Barry. We, we know what a mausoleum is. Calm down, Toys Director Barry Levinson. <laughs> Shortly after this point of the movie is my favorite Nanny 30 for 30, the old footage. And apparently, they also snuck out the game-winning ball of a Johnny Unitas killer comeback, which I forget exactly what game that was. Do you remember? I don't know if it was like a Super Bowl or a playoff game, but it was a big deal game where they were down so hard, and they took... Uh, They're talking about the game that was called the greatest game ever played yes. in the NFL for a long time when they beat the Giants. And Ben was there playing, and the ball just kind of went to him. And then he's got the story of sneaking that out of the stadium, too. And it, it kind of established in the NFL how much you could do with two minutes. <laughs> because there apparently was a time in the NFL where it was like, if it was two minutes left, I was like, yeah, you're probably going to lose. Not if you're fucking Johnny Unitas and the Baltimore Colts. You've got a passing game that pretty much nobody had back then. Some of the biggest, these are, and Johnny Unitas and the Colts are such a huge deal in Baltimore at this time. Other than that, after the Colts are gone, all they have left are Toots Barger, who is like uh, one of the greatest duck pin bowlers <laughs> ever played, they, this lady. I hope they make a 30 for 30 about Toots Barger and her duck pin bowling masterpiece. I think it was a good call not to go too deep in that on this documentary, because you're right. That would have gotten a whole episode of its own, really kind of took it off the rails a little bit. We'll go back to Toots Barger sometime in the future, I'm sure. But they got into how Baltimore, as a city, kind of had this inferiority complex, being basically not D.C., not New York, but they had the football team that was winning. I know that's always an issue with like cities that aren't New York. But they really got to let that go. <laughs> Maybe I'm just so far you're on that northern corridor. I guess if you're up in northeast, it's a thing. I've been to Chicago. There definitely is that feeling in Chicago. But New York is like almost this entirely different animal. You don't have to be New York. And you want to know what? New York is so goddamn expensive that it's officially nearing. It's going to be controversial because you're from New York. You've spent a lot of time in that city. And I've lived in Nashville for a decade now because New York's so damn expensive. It's that New York has gone a little overrated. It was kind of like a, a kind of, I think it's working class gritty days. It's still coasting on that. But now it's a lot of like, how shall you say, yuppie bullshit. That's always been there too. I mean, in any city, you're going to have the areas that are all yuppie bullshit. You're going to have the working class areas. New York's just so much bigger that basically most of Manhattan at this point is the yuppie bullshit. But even today, Baltimore has that, still has that rep of a hard-nosed, working-class city, or also the city that The Wire was based on that involves a lot of crime and drugs. Yeah, they're not going to shake that wire view anytime soon. I don't, do they want to, really? I don't know. I don't think so. At least not the uh, rep coming out of Baltimore. John Waters is also from Baltimore, and he's been uh, a big Baltimore rep all his life. But just think about it as a team. That was a nice point they threw in there. As much as you might not think the inferiority complex is real, it is if you live there. And if you have something that's great, like their 
Baltimore Colts were in the early days of the NFL. That's such a thing to hold on to. And then imagine this big object of civic pride stolen out on moving vans in the middle of the night. And, you know, Robert Ursay, he did it all wrong. And he didn't give the town any credit for helping to support this team. There's a one point in a drunken interview where he says, it's not the fans' team, it's not the team's team, this is my team. I built this team. Your team is nothing without people going to see and supporting your team. You're the guy cutting the paychecks, but nobody's coming to see you. The people need to buy things to, for you to cut those paychecks. Just he totally shat on, the, on all those Colts fans. And that was so tragic. What do you do when that... Your team moves like that. Like, if they take that away, I mean, I know you're a huge Nashville Predators team fan now. And early in their history, there were the rumors that the Preds would be moving. But what if they did now, when you didn't expect it at all, when they're doing great, when they're coming off a Western Conference championship? What if right before this season, they're like, ah, the Preds are going to Canada? It would break my heart. I don't know if I could follow that fandom to anywhere else. I have to pick a different team. I don't even want to think about it, Drew. And I'm sure the Baltimore Colts at the time did not want to think about this either. Now just imagine you're that Baltimore Colts super fan that they highlighted in this 30 for 30 documentary. The guy who showed up at the airport with homemade cakes (laughs) for the players, playing the fight song from the band, who got buried in his jersey after he died. Loudy. How sad was that when they're telling the story of the day they played their first game in Indianapolis, he went into the Colts' old stadium in Baltimore and sat there by himself at game time in the empty stadium where the Colts weren't playing. So sad because Loudy had put all of his hopes and dreams into the Colts. They backed him up on those dreams for years. Eventually he would pass away, but the old classic aspects of the Colts One aspect did not go away. One aspect stayed in that town and let the fans know that you may not have football here, but we love you and we love football and we will always remember you, the band. That wouldn't die? That would not die. The Baltimore Colts band did not move with the Colts to Indianapolis. They stayed in Baltimore and they kept calling themselves the Baltimore Colts band and played parades to huge ovations. Played what are they playing? Uh, shopping mall openings? I don't even remember. Yeah, <laughs> but wherever you could have a band, they showed up in their Colts uniforms that they, I guess, got back from the mausoleum at some point where the threat was gone. I oh, know they said they made a deal. That was in the documentary. They said they made a deal with um, one of the RSAs to keep the uniforms. Yes. once the team had already moved. Because even though they got those uniforms. And they hit them in a mausoleum. They're still technically the property of the team owner. Yeah, so they did work that out. They had their uniforms, which again are totally ridiculous uniforms, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. There's some cross between cowboy chaps and <laughs> blue and white. But they're the Baltimore Colts band, and they're still playing in Baltimore as the Baltimore Colts band every chance they get. These people wouldn't let it go. The kids in schools in Baltimore, they would do the pledge and then sing the Colts fight song. In class. Which is wild. They would get standing ovations every time. They, they're playing the, the Columbus Day Parade walking down the street. And people are like, the Baltimore Colts band. Ooh, yeah. The band was shopping themselves around. Art Modell, the Browns owner at the time, pays the band. He said they came actually pretty cheap to perform halftime every year at Cleveland. And Cleveland liked them. As the Baltimore Colts band, still in those Colts uniforms, they're playing halftime for other things. I think they played a... What was it a Pro Bowl, maybe, or 
just some exhibition games, and then they got brought up to the NFL by Art Modell and the Browns. And if you're a football fan, even if your team was a rival of the Baltimore Colts, you got to respect that drive, that bit that sticks around. It shows that not only do you love football, but they love football too. And that's the one thing that can bring all those people together. And they kept saying that they were also holding out hope that there would be another team in Baltimore at one point. And that having the band already there, showing that they had this built-in fan base already, would only help when the NFL did expand. And the NFL did expand, and it didn't expand to Baltimore. <laughs> so sad. You still have that band. I loved all the shots in this documentary of them just in a bar, like looking like Cheers, <laughs> talking about my Colts and the day they yeah, left. Those are a lot <laughs> of exactly fun. the way you would expect it to be. But uh, one guy, uh, the mayor at the time, Don Schaefer, he never really got over it, and he considers. I think his was his son. Uh, no, it was one of the band members, uh, Jim Spiros, I believe. He had stated how Don Schaefer had never got over it and considered that a black mark on his mayoral career in Baltimore. Oh, yeah. He was furious. I mean, he said he was friends with Ursay at one point. And he had promised, he said, look, when all these rumors are out there, just tell me first. And he didn't even tell the mayor when it was happening. Just tried to sneak out of there in the middle of the night in this ridiculous, like, Looney Tunes villain style. Oh. <laughs> He could not have done that in the worst possible way. <laughs> Took a shit on city hall steps or something. <laughs> Maybe he did that too. Or I mean, you're talking about a drunker here. <laughs> or you know, he pissed in that empty stadium. It was like the <laughs> last thing that probably happened. Oh uh, man, poor Loudy. That story was breaking my heart. Yeah. Sit, imagining him sitting in the stadium where his team opened the season before, but now they're opening in Indianapolis. And he's just sitting there. Maybe he's got headphones on listening to the game, pretending it's yeah. going on in front of him. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> well, what headphones would they have had at the time? Did they have the Walkmans at the day? I don't know. I'm just kind of picturing Steve Bartman in a Colts yeah. uniform right now. <laughs> <laughs> in my head, this is where the story's going. Now, this band, they kind of became fairly prolific amongst football fans to the point where they were kind of representative of the sport of football all around, they performed at Hall of Fames. Audiences responded well to them. They got the nickname of the Orphan Annies of the NFL. The Hall of Fame game, that's right. That was the first one they played associated with the NFL. And they had this protest vibe that people loved. So anybody that had in any sport, any NFL fan out there is going to have any kind of at least mild to high animosity towards the big wig commissioners and ownership of the NFL. And this band kind of represented like an FU to those power structures within the NFL. And that kind of caused a lot of people to learn to love this band, even if they weren't from Baltimore. That's a great point. The Baltimore Colts band was the little people, the everyday fans of this team who got shafted real hard that weren't the ownership, that weren't. I mean, look, you, you went to Indianapolis and they were ready for the Colts, too. Every There's that second side to every story. When a team moves, you're leaving behind heartbroken fans and history in the one city. But then how happy are these Indianapolis fans to get a team to call their own? Yeah. But the Baltimore Colts band. That was all the other side of it. Everybody could emphasize with this. Now, the primary purpose of the Baltimore Colts band was to promote 
and to basically say the city of Baltimore needs an NFL team. And the NFL was interested in expansion. And they gave them preseason games to test, throwing them some crumbs to see like how the city would bite. The city sold out all of those preseason games. And when expansion time came again, they were passed over yet again for Jacksonville. Of all cities, man. <laughs> you know, Baltimore again with their this built-in inferiority complex they were going on on there. Still so proud of what they were doing with not only the band, but the sold-out preseason games. They thought they were in the, the driver's seat for an NFL team. Yeah. And then it goes to Jacksonville. If you sell out preseason games, that should be more than enough for the sign for the NFL to bring a team. But, hey, that's not what it's all about. It's all about that backroom wheeling and dealing with the big wigs. Politics bullshit. The band goes on. And they had a flag squad, too. I dated a flag girl. She uh, made me a man in high school. Baltimore Colts flag girl? How old was she? And still she, in high school. Man. She, 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 was about, she was about 62 years old. <laughs> still in high school. Moved out to Tennessee to try to graduate. <laughs> she was a flag girl at my high school. Oh, okay, okay. Anyway. I hope she's doing well wherever she is. So, so this was really personal to you. <laughs> yeah. And when I saw the flag girl, I was like, oh, yeah. You're remembering uh, what made me from a boy into a man. <laughs> oh, the flag girl. She needs to take a break here, I understand. I mean, the cheerleaders weren't going to get with this. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. What about the tuba players? <laughs> Maybe a couple tuba players. <laughs> the band that would not die. <laughs> The CFL games are then played in Baltimore. They got a CFL team to come to Baltimore. <laughs> what? That's what happened. They couldn't get the NFL team. They got a Canadian Football League team to play in Baltimore at the old stadium. Because they wanted football back so much. And people went. They were stoked for it. <laughs> now, this is like the eras where the band is in the mud of bureaucracy. They're, they're representative of the fans. This movie is... Totally about the fans. That's what. That's the best part about this movie is that it's about fans. And, but they're in the bureaucracy of this, which they, they have to be because their goal is to get a team back to the NFL. And they get a CFL team. And that when they're singing the Canadian National Anthem, and one of the football players is looking at the other like, the, what? What is going on here? <laughs> in like, Baltimore. <laughs> I mean, we're hockey fans, so we're used to hearing the Canadian Anthem. When, uh, I love the Canadian Anthem, yeah, personally. Yeah, it's kind of a lot of fun when Canadian teams come to play the Preds. For Baltimore, they didn't know what was going on. They're like, okay. And again, you're coming off the Johnny Unitas Colts, the greatest game ever played. Kind of a bummer in Super Bowl three to the Jets, but... You know, pretty much a really proud history of the NFL in Baltimore. The governor, whose name I should have probably written down, but I didn't. He's not a sports fan, but he know what he does is a fan of Drew? Marching bands. <laughs> Who isn't? I mean, I've got posters of my favorite marching band members all up in the, the studios for walking off. Yeah, this room is decked out in marching band memorabilia. I got like a bass drum over there. Got some of my favorite marching band jerseys that I wear to good recitals. I've got like 10 clarinets on the wall. I come to that clarinet. Signed by your favorite players. I got Gibson clarinets. Signed by <laughs> Jordan Tutu. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> I want to say one of my other favorite in a corny way in this documentary was every time it seemed to be going good for the Baltimore Colts and the Baltimore Colts marching band, the city of Baltimore, something bad would happen, and they'd go to the darkened stadium shot, and it was like, <laughs> betrayal time. There was like some Barry Levinson shots where 
it would be like one second on him while he's talking to uh, this uh, Mr. Spiro. It just seemed a little unnecessary. It's like, okay, buddy. Hey, remember, I'm doing this one. Betrayal time. Darkened stadium. Dun, dun, dun. So the governor is working to kind of help this band out. He's inspired by the band, and he wants to give the uh, the band and the city of Baltimore what they want. A goddamn football team. Canadian football team. <laughs> he did the best he could. He's not an NFL commissioner, but he did the best he could. And it was cool they had a football team to go to again. I'm sure it's not what the people of Baltimore really wanted, but they had professional-level football, and they went to the games. They showed up. They supported him. I knew this guy from Baltimore. He was like a bit of a rapper. And he had this line that I would always, that I never forgot. It was, yo, I'm from B-more. I'm just trying to eat more. All right. A little sidetrack there. <laughs> but they never stopped going for an NFL team. Even when they had their CFL, they weren't like, boys, we're back in it. This is it. <laughs> this is the pinnacle. It was good. It was football. But they still wanted that NFL team and thought they deserved it. Finally, the dreams begin to come true. Eventually, Baltimore would get their team back. They would be the Ravens. I did not know that they were the Browns. Really? No. I don't know how you missed that because it was it was such a wild moment in kind of karma almost that they finally got their team back, but they got it by completely dicking over another city, another Rust Belt city. That's back. right. So Indianapolis got the Colts, and years later, the Cleveland Browns, again, a beloved team with an extensive NFL history and a huge fan base. Everybody knows the Dog Pound and the Cleveland yes. Browns fans. And, and they kind of snuck out of there with Art Modell, an owner who's now absolutely hated in Cleveland the right. way Ursay is in Baltimore. <laughs> but the Baltimore fans got their team, and they loved them. Yes. They loved having their team of back. They Sorry, Cleveland. Them. Eat it. The band members did state that there was some mixed feelings on it. Of course they wanted that football back, but they did legitimately feel bad for the fans in Cleveland. They wanted the expansion team. That's what they went for. They were shocked when it went to Jacksonville instead. But then they got the Cleveland Browns. But, of course, the Browns would... There would be a Browns to come to Cleveland eventually. At the announcement of the Ravens, it's not immediately stated that the Baltimore Colts marching band are going to be the Ravens marching band. John Zeman has to go on a local talk show, and he has to make his case to the new ownership. But was Art Modell's son, David Modell, was a fan of the marching band. And when they were in Cleveland, he was kind of their contact when they played halftime at the Browns games. So he was on the talk show, and they brought the guy up <laughs> out of the stands, said, I'm the head of the Baltimore Colts marching band. They said, we want you. Now, uh, Art, Art Modell, as much as he's hated in Cleveland, he actually knows to embrace the Colts' history. And, he, and Johnny Unitas shows up to support the, this new team in Baltimore, letting those fans know this isn't the Baltimore Colts, but you got a team, and it's okay to love now the Baltimore Ravens. Nevermore. Well, they waited their one year, that's what they did there, to go move into their new stadium. They, they played one year at the old stadium, then they moved into the new M&T Bank or whatever it was called stadium. And that's when they changed the marching band's uniforms. It was this whole big thing where the Baltimore Colts band became the Baltimore Ravens band and got some modern black uniforms. But they had this big ceremony on the field because, again, that was the big point was getting Johnny Unitas on board. That's going to get the fans to love this team and embrace them as their 
their NFL team the way they did the Colts. They had this totally ridiculous ceremony on the field <laughs> where Johnny Unitas and some other Baltimore Colts legends were wearing their Baltimore Colts windbreakers. And then as the team came on the field, they reversed the windbreakers to say, Oh shit, it's the Ravens now! <laughs> oh, oh, oh shit, Baltimore Ravens! The same players, but now they're the Ravens! <laughs> this is our team! What a symbolic gesture. <laughs> it was wild. Edgar Allan Poe was there, letting everyone know that you can love your Baltimore Ravens. It was his mausoleum. Yeah. <laughs> but going back to that thing with the Browns, the Browns almost got a deal worked out immediately. There was such a backlash against the NFL from kind of stealing the Browns away from Cleveland that they did it a little bit differently. The NFL immediately said the Ravens are moving to Baltimore and they're going to be a new team. And then we're going to put the the Cleveland Browns back in Cleveland the next time we have an expansion. Nice. So there will be a Cleveland Browns again, but your Browns are gone to Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll get an expansion team that's going to be fucking terrible for years. Here in Nashville, the Titans play. I'm a Titans fan. The Titans came from Houston, the Oilers. And it's, it's a weird thing. I don't personally accept this history. But the technical history of the Titans is also the history of the Oilers. But to me, Titans history begins when they come to Tennessee. I agree with you. There's a lot of backlash on that stuff. The, the team history, it is technically the same team that moved. The so Adams they keep the history. But the Tennessee team starts over. At least in the court of public opinion, if not the actual record books. Yeah, Houston gets to claim Warren Moon. We do not. And they did that same thing with the transitional year, where for the first year after moving to Nashville, they were the Tennessee Oilers. But after that, they took the name the Tennessee Titans and kind of embraced it in the same way, just kind of blended them together to become, okay, this is now your team. It's a new thing, but you can still love it like you did that old team. If you want to, if we want their fans, we'll take them too. It's kind of understandable why Houston would not like us, especially those that remember those old days. But that like carryover history is, that's awkward. I understand why that would be a problem. And Houston ended up getting a new team as well in the Texans years later when the NFL expanded again. So they got their team again. The Cleveland Browns became the Cleveland Browns again a year later. And I really believe a whole big part of that, why that happened, was the huge back backlash over the way the Baltimore Colts snuck out in the middle of the night and screwed the city of Baltimore. Yes. Don't ever fucking do that to a city again. <laughs> Yeah, that's not happening. That was <laughs> just so brutal, just <laughs> ripping it out. <laughs> and, of course, the Ravens go on to find their own successes. The band, as you said, becomes the Baltimore's Marching Ravens, a band that will never die. That stayed in Baltimore. <laughs> plays on, Drew. What a story, man. And they were doing clips of this with Ray Lewis doing his Ravens dance. <laughs> like, this is a new team. Baltimore Marching Ravens that are still there today. No, I did. I agree with you. This was a lot better than a King's Ransom. I like the fan focus. This story was dripping with heart. I felt like Barry Levinson didn't really bring much too unique to the table. Some tricks he tried to do just seemed a little corny. He didn't have too much of himself in him, like in the way uh, Battleship Director Peter Berg did in King's Ransom. But there was like a very a few Toys Director Barry Levinson moments in it. But how many Herzogs would you give the band that wouldn't die? I just want to say first that I loved this movie. I feel like this is, I said at the beginning, 
But I really feel like this is what 30 for 30 was meant to be in the way that they let this smaller story play out and get around the edges and blur and tell the bigger story as well. Even diehard sports fans like myself who post a sports talk radio show, I did not know the story of the Baltimore Colts band until I watched this 30 for 30. Me either. And I watched it. And I got totally connected. I could see myself in a lot of these sports fans. Maybe not Laddie. That was a little much. Yeah. But I could see myself (laughs) in a lot of these sports fans here and just putting myself in that position of the way that they showed the special connection that fans have to a team. And they told this really intimate, smaller story that expanded into the story that every sports fan knows about the teams moving the Mayfell Hour trucks in the middle of the night. It was just such an impressive form of storytelling. And I, I think he did, I'm not exactly as versed in the theatrical tricks of making a documentary, but I liked the way he let the story tell the story. There was no driven narrative arc, really. He let you focus on the characters and fill it out. Until you really got the whole picture. I loved that. I'm going to give it 4.5 out of 5 hertz. Whoa, holy fucking shit. (laughs) That's the highest rating we've gotten so far. Well, this is my second episode here with you on the Documenteers. That's uh, that's that's our, this is our second 30 for 30. That's a respectable opinion. I felt like it was a good film. Felt like there was a lot of good things going for it. There were some things that I felt like were a little basic. But ultimately, what puts me over the edge is the heart. And ultimately, it was a good movie because of that. And it was about how much a city can mean to a team or how much a team can mean to a city. A team is just not much without that fan base. I'm going to give the band that wouldn't die 3.5 Herzogs. So just slightly over mediocre from you. Slightly over. I felt like it was going into the really good territory. But it was slightly better than, like, typically good and halfway halfway between typically good and really good. So I give it 3.5 Herzogs. You combine your 4.5 Herzogs, Drew, with my 3.5 Herzogs. We have uh, 4, 5, 6, seven, one. 8 out of 10 total Herzogs. For the second episode of 30 for 30, The Band That Wouldn't Die. That's a respectable score. Toys director Barry Levinson, he's probably listening to this. He's probably very proud of that 8 out of 10 score. Congratulations to this band that's still going. And congratulations to the city of Baltimore for having their Ravens. But I'm a Titans fan, so fuck the Ravens. Uh, I don't like Ravens fans either. Good night, everybody. Robert Ursay? We're going to have to edit all this part out. Fuck this. Let's start over.